certain modern day movies or TV shows, none of which I would recommend you watching. And the only reason I know that it was a reference in these shows is because of the historical sites I was looking on. But in a couple of episodes of The Sopranos, which I don't think a Christian should watch, and some other casino movies, you will hear the phrase talking about a wealthy person, you are as wealthy as King Croesus. Uh, he was one of the first to mint gold coins. And by all ancient standards, the king of Sardis in about 550 B.C. was one of the wealthiest men to ever live. And a couple things that happened, if you've ever seen the movie 300, which I don't think it's a movie Christians should watch, but most of you have already watched it in the past. You've heard of a man by the name of King Xerxes, a great Persian king. He would have been... Um, the one who overtook um, Sardis in that day and time. But in that day and time, as we know, history is full of legend and myth. But what we do know is that the city was almost impenetrable. But somehow the Persian army figured out that there was a way to sneak into the city. Legend says that a guard dropped his helmet over the wall. And when he went down through the secret door to get his helmet, the Persians saw that secret door. On the other side, they brought all of their troops, got all the attention on the other side, and then snuck their elite soldiers through that gate to then take the city. And so when you think about that, and you hear Jesus talk about coming as a thief in the night, these individuals would have known their city's history whether it was legend or not, they would have known it and said, wait a second, that's exactly what they did to us. A few decades later, after the city had been rebuilt, uh, they had another instance where they were under siege. They could not be overcome. But as they were being starved, there was a part of the wall that they would throw dead bodies over. And legend has it that the enemies noticed that that part of the wall was less guarded than the rest. Because who wants to climb through dead bodies that have been plague infested and starved and, and all the rotting corpses and you saying that's gross, just stay with me. The enemy army used that area to sneak into these walls that were supposed to be unassailable and took the city again. So when Jesus says, I will come as a thief, these people are thinking back going, wait a second, we know what that means. And I think it is so amazing when you read the book of Revelation that each city is specifically spoken to in a way that they would understand, that they would know the things that were important to them. And so this wealthy city that had been pillaged twice by people who snuck in, when Jesus tells them this, they're thinking, wait a second, this applies to us. And so when we start this chapter here in verses 1, the first bit of notes that I have for you tonight, and as always, if you are not listening or don't want to listen, the answers are at the bottom of the last page. Outward appearances can be deceiving. Outward appearances can be deceiving. It says here in verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We looked at that earlier, how 
uh, the seven stars are most likely the uh, pastors of each church, and the seven spirits is most likely the completeness of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit and the leader of a church, when they're together, uh, it is the ideal of what it should be. But it goes on and says, These things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. That you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Now this is a great um, time for all of us to step back in our walk with the Lord. Because what we see here is the Lord knows everything about us. He doesn't know what our Christian faith is talked about. He doesn't just know the Christian faith that we try to, per, uh, to show everyone else. He actually knows who we are. What we do in the secret moments of our life. The same goes for a church. I, uh, I, I can tell you that every church has a reputation. Some of it is justified. Some of it is not justified. Some of it is good. Some of it is not good. But what I can tell you is, if someone asks you about your church, they're probably going to ask you one of two questions. The first one is probably always going to be, where is that at? Right? Where, 10 miles? Is it 10 miles from something? If I hear that anyway, it doesn't matter. I don't know what it's 10 miles from. And the second one, it will always be, how many people go there? And if you can tell them more than 100 people, it's like, well, that's a mega church in the middle of wherever it's at. But that does not mean a church is alive. You say, well, we, we, we have Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and Sunday school and youth and children's and all of that activity. But it still doesn't mean a church is alive. And so when the Lord looks at this, He really is piercing each and every one of us and them to the core. To reflect, what are we doing for the Lord? Is it really spiritual fruit? Or is it religious activity? Do I really see the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Or am I doing religious things? You say, I'm attending church. I believe the Bible teaches that you should. You say, well, Jake, I, I, I'm giving money. I believe the Bible teaches you should. Well, Jake, you know what? I'm, 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 I'm serving the Lord in many different ways. I believe you should. But none of those three things are what? The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what each of us have to look to make sure that the tree is good. To make sure that God is producing fruit. We see here in this passage of Scripture that God knows the heart and mind of everyone who makes up a local church. Now you can probably imagine if you were here Sunday that I have caught some flack from my statement when I said, when some people ask me about certain people that come to church, I can say good things about them without lying. Now when people ask about other people, and I have to say, I think they were here in Easter of 2013, but yes, we're so glad to have them. That did not go over well. I will give you one guess to which group it didn't go over well with. Yeah, the ones who that applied to. It's just a fact. Just a fact. And so when we read this, I think it has been fitting because as I've dealt with this this week and the 
the few text messages and things that have been sent to me, like, Jake, why do you have to offend everybody? I said, I don't offend everybody, but I offend everybody at some point, not all at the same time, usually. But when we think about this, the Lord knows. The Lord knows why you're here, even if you're here for the wrong reason. God knows why you're doing what you're doing, whether it's for the right reason or not. It's easy to sit and criticize those who stay home. It's easy to sit and criticize those who aren't committed. But this letter is written to the people that were congregating. That would have been in the hearing of this letter. And so what he's saying is, for those who are gathering together, I know that people think you are alive, but you are dead. And so think about what Jeremiah 17 verse 10 says. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. And so as the Lord searches us, we know that we all fall short. We all look back at our life and we've made mistakes. I look back at the 11 plus years I've been here and thought, Jay, why do you do some of the dumb things that you do? And I have to ask for forgiveness. As a husband, my wife and I will be married uh, this year uh, in July, 14 years. And I look back at some of the things she's done over the years and thought, well, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding. Well, yeah, she's not here at the moment, so I can help. No, but I think about what we've both done. The things that I've done and thought, Jake, and I've had to ask God for forgiveness and her for forgiveness. And so we cannot think that just because God is dealing with us, that we cannot find forgiveness, that we cannot find a second chance. But we have to be willing to let God evaluate us, to evaluate our church. A church rises and falls on the spiritual condition of its leadership. Now you say, what is leadership in a church? I think it is multiple. I don't think it's just a pastor. I don't think it's just a deacon. I don't think it's just Sunday school teachers. I think that if you influence someone, you have been given a position of leadership. It might not be classified that in the church's eyes, but everyone you influence has the potential to either help them in their walk with the Lord or to hurt or hinder their walk with the Lord. That's why when Samuel was being told by the Lord that Saul is done, we're moving on from Saul, we're moving on to King David. It says these words, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical statute, stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so when God has put you as whatever you are in this church, know that He is not looking at the outward. He's looking at the inward. And most churches, let's just be honest, can track their history through times of great difficulty. I have spent a lot of time with churches that are on the verge of collapsing. I spent almost three hours after church at Heritage Woods on Sunday. I think it was three hours, something like that. A long time uh, with a church that is almost ready to close. Down to four to five to ten people. 
And I, um, as you know, I like to listen. And so uh, one person was saying, well, it was, it was the deacons and the pastor's fault because they kept spending money and they kept doing this and they kept making these mistakes. And so like 35 minutes of that, this guy sits there and he listens and he listens. And, and if it had been me, I'd have slapped her. All right, I'm just going to be honest with you. Because it was all about things that he did. Well, as she got up and walked away, then he turned around and said, that's not the same history I remember. <laughs> I remember these two families fighting for decades and decades and decades and families getting caught in the crossfire and they separated and the church was destroyed by it. But what we see is that simple premise that when leadership cannot follow the Lord and love each other, the church is doomed. Churches can survive a season with a bad pastor. Churches can survive a season with a, a difficult deacon. Churches can survive a, a time of great struggle in staff or leaders. But you cannot survive it when everybody is doing things for the wrong reasons. When the majority of those making decisions are making decisions outside of the will of God, a church is done for. If God does not one change hearts or remove the problem. And that's what he says here. These people looked the part, talked the part, had everything going from an outward standpoint. But the Lord says, I know the heart. And it's wrong. Thoughts, questions, comments. I even have a comment or question section now for you to write questions that you have or thoughts so you don't forget them. The first thought I come up with was how this church is forming up and it's probably one of the scarier things and thinking we're talking like about Luke 13 where Jesus is getting the Lord, Lord, did we do this, did we do that? And so I never knew you just because you're, you know, you walk like a duck and quack like a duck and you make you a duck. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to try to get through these first two points because the last one is a doozy. All right. Even when things seem hopeless, even when things seem hopeless, godly people turn things around. There are five verbs that are given here about what a church must do when it finds itself adrift, when it finds itself that it's it's active but it's not alive, when it's busy but it's not born again. When it's serving but not spirit-filled, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. You have to evaluate what you are doing and strengthen the things that are of God. That means you pour into those things that are of God and you let the other things go. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. What is he telling them to remember? The gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. What it takes to truly be saved. Church is not about attendance. It's not about wealth. It's not about fame. It is because we have all been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been brought into the family of God. And that's why we worship. We don't worship because that's where our family goes to church. We don't worship there because that's where our boss goes to church. We don't worship there because it's where I work. We worship one and 
one person only, and that's Jesus Christ. He is the focus, and we have to return to that. We have to remember what He's done. This group of people had to remember what He had done through them and for them. He goes on and says, hold fast. Because, listen here, it won't be well received. I hope you know that, right? When you try to turn an organization that has lost its way, there are people who are entrenched and don't want it to turn. They're comfortable the way it is. They're comfortable with the way it's going. And repent. We have to be willing to say, I have done wrong. I've let other things become more important. I think as a church, in this case that we're watching is very similar to could be said about ours and other large churches. It is what do you compromise in order to keep people that you used to not compromise on before you had people? I know that was a lot, but think about that. What do you compromise on to keep people that you would have never compromised on before you had people? I think that's the same way in our own life. What will I compromise on now to get along with other people that I would have never compromised on years ago? I hope that you know there's only two ways that most of us drift. One is much more liberal or two, much more legalistic. No one stays on the straight and narrow without constant spiritual discipline. Constantly being led by the Spirit of God. You say, well, Jake, I, I'm a lot more liberal than I used to be. Shame on you. You say, well, I'm a lot more legalistic than I used to be. Shame on you. What does the Word say? What hills are worth dying on? As a church, what is worth dying on for us? What is what we cannot compromise? We see it in Ephesians chapter 5. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And so we have to be willing for the Spirit of God to work in us, to, to lead us, to guide us. And when we do that, it will look like this. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We are to be encouraging each other. Not in the pulpit. We're supposed to be doing that. But when we are gathered together in this way. Now I probably don't always do this very well. Because I like sarcasm. And I like humor. And there's a place for that. Please don't think that. But that's probably not going to be the spiritual fruit that God wants me to have. Because what it says here is psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. The Word of God is what encourages us. The Word of God is what strengthens us. And so while you don't have to walk around quoting Philippians 3, whatever, the principles of Scripture should be in our conversation. Let our speech be encouraging. Let our speech be seasoned with salt. And I'm reading this thinking, oh, man. So you're saying I shouldn't have made fun of somebody's weight. Or someone's losing their hair. Or you know, they took it well. It was okay. 
But yet think of the potential that we have to speak life into people's lives that we waste, that we just miss out on. Because it goes on and says, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things to God, that the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we begin to share the word, our hearts are encouraged and we begin to rejoice in the Lord. Once we're rejoicing in the Lord, it allows us to be thankful to the Lord. And then once we're giving thanks for all that God has done for us, we're encouraging each other. At that moment, then we can do the one thing that none of us wants to do. Submitting to one another the fear of God. Now, before you stone me, I want to read that again. Submitting to who? One another. It doesn't say submitting to the Lord. We're to do that. But it means each other. If we want a church that is really alive, it means that there's unity. Real unity. Not the kind where we just keep our mouth shut to get along. But real unity. That I'm thankful that God has you here. I'm thankful for what God's doing in your life that you're here. I want to help you and I want you to help me grow in my walk with the Lord. Because God wants to do amazing things through you and through me. And when that happens, when we can get in that mindset, the little things don't matter. The selfishness doesn't matter. And then we can be used by God. Thoughts, questions. Can you give an example of a legalistic this way, a liberal this way? Yeah, I can give I can give uh, that. So if you were uh, you want a biblical example or you want like one today? Right? So the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have been a wonderful example of legalism, right? Uh, you know, you couldn't walk so far on the Sabbath. You know, Jesus got in trouble for picking some grain. Uh, uh, his disciples didn't fast and pray. That would be an example, right? Uh, on the flip side of that, if you look at the New Testament, you will see, um, like the Church of Corinth, that has said, well, we know what the Bible says about all of these sexual sins, but as long as you do it in the name of religion, or if, if you do it because this is what you want, that would be okay. So that would be on the other side of that. In today's world, it would be, for instance, like this. And this is going to upset people, and I, I give you a heads up. You're welcome. So there are some people who believe that you only can read from the King James Bible. That's it. King James only. If you don't read out the King James Version, you're not even a believer. All right? I've used the new King James Version. When I'm at home, I use the King James Version. I think I love the King James Version, right? But I do not believe that if you use a different one, that you're wrong. Some of them I don't like. I don't like the ESV, which most people love. And I'll explain that in a few minutes. But anyway, so that would be very legalistic, all right? On the other side of that, if you were to go to Chicago, like a good friend of mine has went to Chicago recently, and you would see every church downtown with humongous gay pride flags. That would be liberalism. They've taken the word of God and his teaching on sexuality and said, God's just love. You don't have to obey him. You don't have to seek his word. So those would be two dramatic examples, I think, of both.
But I wonder if you read this verses uh, three and a half and four with me here. Therefore, if you will not watch, I want you to think back to the history of this city. I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So, he says, you won't know when judgment's coming. You won't know when correction's coming. But yet there are still people who have been faithful. I, I put this verse in there because when we think about this church that is compromised so much that the Lord says they're dead. Then that gives us the mindset, we ought to fight about everything then. Right? There's not a belief that we have or a decision that we make that shouldn't be defended because we don't want to be accused of being dead. Well, look what the Bible says about a pastor. Because I get this all the time. Too conservative, too liberal. You don't make a big deal about some things, you ought to make a big deal about others. But listen to what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. See, as Christians, we should be known for what we believe, but we shouldn't be the first person to every argument, every fight, every issue of division that happens in life. Let people argue on their Facebook page without you. Let people at work fight in the break room without you. If you can't quote scripture, this is going to sound very blunt, just shut up. That's what God's been telling me. Jake, if you don't have the authority of my word to stand on, just let it go. Because God's word is authoritative. And when God's word speaks, speak it. Speak it in love. But not everyone needs to know your opinion on immigration, gun control, or lack or lack thereof. I've got one, trust me. But be careful. That you don't ruin your witness because you become a quarrelsome person. I don't want their opinion because it's just going to be something argumentative. You know people like that. That's why I got off Facebook. Because literally, I would have stopped speaking to hundreds of people after watching their stupidity. Now I walk up to them like, I think you're dumb, but I don't know for sure. So I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, there comes the text messages, I know. Yeah. It's all about clicks, right? Views and likes. No. You might throw that off. Yeah. But I want you to see this because this city knew what it was like to have everything and lose it. And this church was being warned that you have so much to be thankful for, but you could lose it all. And when I read this, this is probably the one that, that I pray about most for our church. Because by all accounts, God has been so good to us. I mean, we've had our share of problems. We've had our, pair, our, our share of stinkers. We've done stupid things. I, I know that. But we've been blessed. In every single way. I've seen people saved. Just talking to someone right now about a man who's under conviction for his for his gambling and then he's giving it up and he's telling the people in his life so they can hold him accountable. And you say, Jake, that's a big deal. You bet it is. You bet it is because addiction is hard. And if the Lord doesn't do it, you will continue to do it. 
Now, do I wish that every marriage was right where it should be? Every believer was as dedicated as they should be? Absolutely. But I can tell you there are so many amazing things. And God gets all the credit. But friends, I want you to see this. That if we're not careful, and it becomes about us, or we begin to compromise to keep what we have, we will lose it. God will come when we least expect it. And correct us from it. That's what had happened in this city. And that's what God wanted them to know. And so as a church, we should always make sure that one, when I come to church, I'm coming for the right reasons. And if I'm not coming for the right reasons, look up here. All you have to do is get along with the Lord. And say, Lord, change my heart today. I'm not going to, I'm not. <laughs> I, here's another one. I believe a preacher ought to preach in a suit and tie. It's just my personal opinion. I think if the president's going to look respectable, I think if Congress is going to look respectable, I believe a pastor ought to look. That's just my opinion, all right? If you want to wear shorts and flip-flops, there's lots of churches for you. That's fine, all right? Sometimes I don't wear a tie because i got more neck fat than I should, all right? Let's just be honest. Sometimes the chins get into the coats and the shirts. So, But that's just a personal preference of mine. When I go listen to a guy, I want to listen to a guy in a suit and tie. That's a little bit legalistic of me, but I'm not going to make anybody else feel that way. All right? It's just my personal preference. But I'm not going to go to church like, well, that guy didn't have a tie, and I'm walking out. And we had bib night here. One of my favorite nights of all time. Why? And it was fun, but I can tell you, someone told me that doesn't go to church here, I can promise you, if I'd have showed up at a church and some old guy was preaching in a bib, I'd have got up and left. And I'd have said, I'd have probably clapped when you walked out. See, those are the comments that get you in trouble. I didn't have to say that, but I this was out of my mouth before I ever did. I got to find a sarcastic hymn. Yeah. Those moments, it's like, oh, Jake. But I say all that because you say, well, Jake, I can't worship because, I, because something happened to me. Or I can't worship because I didn't like this decision. Or I can't worship because I, I don't agree with this. Hey, get along with God. Get it right. And if it involves another person, get with them and make it right. But don't let your ability to worship God and the blessings that come from that be robbed from you and us as a group because we've grown dead and cold inside. Last second. Comments, questions. We're going to move on to the last one. This is the landmine. I can remember when uh, you preached in jeans. I did preach in jeans. You're right. And if you ever heard that story, I'll tell it really quickly. We had grown tremendously fast the first couple of years I was here. It was crazy how much we were growing and things were uh, just exploding. And I just felt like there was a few people that thought that their uh, their stuff didn't stink anymore. And I maybe it was me. And so one Sunday for Easter, I went to baptize. I don't know how many we had to baptize that Sunday, but it was quite a few. And that morning, the Lord had said, bring jeans. And I, have, I wore a pair of jeans, and it was a brown and orange shirt. I'll never forget it with one of those uh, brown coats. Uh, well, Larry wears them all the time. They're not suit coats, but yes, right. And I brought one of those, and I thought, well, that's strange, you know. So anyway... And so as soon as I got in preaching, I felt like the Lord said, you need to wear them. I'm like, oh. So I never forget, I come out on Easter Sunday wearing that. And people were like, oh, that looks weird, no tie. 
And I preached that way for, I don't know, a year and a half or so. And, and then at some point, I felt like the Lord said, hey, you're back on the right track. You can wear suits and ties. And I've been wearing them ever since. So I'm trying not to get prideful because I don't want to wear jeans again. Because I don't know if you know anything, but when you get fat, jeans are no fun. So, you know, stuff's popping out that shouldn't be popping out from here. And so anyway, suits are better. But yes, that was why I did that. The third thing to type before I ramble on forever. The decisions that a church makes today have eternal results. Eternal results. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says the churches. Do you remember when we started the book of Revelations, I told you we were going to hit it all. The stuff that we don't always understand, that might not agree with us, that we're just going to wade through it. And if you're like me and you're a Southern Baptist and you read that and it says, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, it probably causes your ears just to stand up a little bit. Because I believe the Bible teaches what? That when God puts you in the palm of his hand, he keeps you in the palm of his hand. And so what does this teach? Well, first, we see this is an encouragement and not a threat. The second part of this in the Greek is negative. And you're saying, I don't care what that means. It matters. It is not saying that something will happen. It is used as pointing you to what is said first. So what he's really focusing on is those who overcome. Those who overcome shall be clothed in white garments. Those of us who are saved and endure to the end will receive the rewards of heaven. We will enjoy all of the blessings that come with it. But we cannot just overlook this like it doesn't matter. So what do we see from the Bible about the book of life? And how many times it's mentioned? I want to start by saying in Luke chapter 12 verse 8, you cannot be a true born-again believer in Jesus Christ unless you confess Him as the Lord and Savior of your life. First and foremost, Luke chapter 12, verse 8. Also I say to you, whoever confesses Me before men, him, the Son of Man, also will confess before the angels of God. So I want you to write down in your comments section all the time the Bible talks about the book of life. And what we believe about it. In Exodus chapter 32, in verses 32 and 33, after the children of Israel have offered sacrifice and worship to the golden calf, Moses begs God and says, Blot my name out instead of them. Don't remove them, remove me. But when you look at the language that is used there, he's not talking about the book of life as in the sense of spiritual life or death. He's talking about physical death. He's saying, God, don't wipe them out. Don't do that. Take my life instead. We know that because he goes right on and says, I'm not going with you. You guys move on to your next place, to the land of promise. And if you're familiar with Exodus chapter 32, that's when they say, no, 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 no. If you don't go, we don't go. If you're not with us, we're not going. And so what Moses is saying is, in this passage of Scripture, 
God will wipe you out for your sin. Absolutely from time to time. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to write that down, talking about the Lord's Supper. That some have fallen asleep. That some have become uh, sick and weak because of sin in their life as they worship the Lord. So we see that it's physical health. Sin can have a physical effect on your life. And there are times that sin is punishable by physical death. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, when we read the end of this wonderful book, it tells us that anyone who takes the words away from this book in any way, in 22 verses 18 and 19, especially verse 19, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. And so what we see here is anyone who, who, who works against the word of God, especially this scroll, especially against this, they are not a child of God. You cannot be a child of God and destroy the word of God. That is why it's so scary when you think about all these denominations who have said, just believe in Jesus don't worry about the Word of God. Like Andy Stanley says, you don't have to believe the book of Genesis. You don't have to believe the Old Testament. The Christian faith came before the Bible. Listen, Jesus affirmed that every one of the Old Testament Scriptures were from God. They were the Word of God. He did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And so what He's saying is, you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you are working against the Word of God, especially the book of Revelation. In Psalm 69, because we're going to look at all of them, we can't skip over this because it's, it's there. In Psalm 69, verses 27 and 28, David is asking that God would remove the life of wicked people. Once again, David is saying, God, they are living in sin. Take them out. Remove their life from them. We see here in Revelations 3, verse 5. Now, if that was the only place we had to look at, then we would stop there. But what does the Bible say about the book of life? And this is where it gets very tricky. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, talking about the end of times, that everyone whose name is in the book of life will be taken to the, with the Lord. I believe he's talking about the rapture. In Philippians 4, verse 3, he talks about his fellow laborers in the Lord and that their names are written in the book of life. In Revelation 20, verse 15, the Bible says, if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, you will enter into the lake of fire. <laughs> Revelation 13, verse 8. And this is why I do not use the ESV. In Revelation 13, verse 8, there is a verse that talks about how our names are written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. That means at the foundation of the world, when God created everything, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. The ESV translates that before. But the Greek word is not pro as in before, but apo, A-P-O. Now, but, but, before you get angry at me, 
In other places, like Ephesians chapter 1, it says before the foundation of the world. And so I do not agree with the teaching that it is written before, but if you change the word of God to support your position, that bothers me. And the ESV is mostly used in this day and age by people who have a Reformed theology. And because it supports more of that, that word has been changed. I have no problem with the word being translated that in Ephesians 1. But when you look at it in the original, it is not pro. So that's why I like the ESV. All right? That's just one small thing in a big picture. So you cannot, you have one of two views. Either God can take this book of life and remove your name from it. Or two, your name was never in the book of life. One of two. That gets into a whole big question from Daniel 7, Revelation 20. Some people believe there are two books of life. I disagree with this, but it is a, a belief that there is a book of life that all people are written into when they are born. And when you reject Jesus, you are blotted out. That is why they say you can be blotted out. I disagree with that. We're born already rejecting Jesus. Huh? We're born already rejecting Jesus. Yes. Yes, but they would say that he did not come into the world to condemn the world, right? I, I don't agree with that. I'm just telling you these are some of the different beliefs. And so we have this question of can you be blotted out of the book of life? Can you lose the salvation that God has given you? That is where you have to go into other scripture. Because I gave you five or six of one and five or six of the other. Now, people who believe that you can are going to do what? They're going to cling to the five that say you can. The people who don't, they're going to cling to what? The five who say that you can't. And so, how are we faithful to the Word of God? I'm glad that you asked. What else does the Bible say? What does the entirety of the Word of God say? Ephesians 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed sealed for the day of redemption. So however this works, once you are sealed, it says you are sealed for what? The day of redemption. And so when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, He will never leave you. The problem is this. The doctrine of the security of the believer, to quote Adrian Rogers, not quote, to quote Debbie A. Criswell, has been used as an excuse for every damnable heresy that has ever entered the church. What that means is this. You made a profession of faith when you were seven. You've chased after the things of the world. You never came back to church. You've done everything anti-God your whole life. But yet you died and some preacher gets up and says, they prayed when they were seven. God put them in the palm of his hand and nothing can separate them. That is why so many people struggle with this. And that's where Billy Sunday messed the church up by coming up with the sinner's prayer. Yeah. The sinner's prayer doesn't save us all. No, no. But calling upon the name of the Lord is what the Bible says. So I think the heart was right behind it, but I think it has become so idolized. Now, and I think there's, there's, there's a, a movement to try to increase numbers. You're trying to yeah. pull people to the altar. Mm -hmm. And we can't do that. The Holy Spirit's job to pull somebody to the altar. Yeah. 
So I say this because what the Bible teaches is this. When you are born again, the Spirit comes to live within you. And He begins to do something in your life. And that is called the process of sanctification. That is making you more and more like <coughs> Jesus. He is convicting you of the area of your life that shouldn't be there. He is encouraging you and, and growing you and all of these things. That's what the Bible teaches us. But the first time we lose a loved one who is running from God, we begin to ask the question, was that person truly saved? 1 Corinthians 11 clearly teaches that if you're running from God and you're a child of God, that God will take you home. That's what it says in the verses about the Lord's Supper. But does the Bible teach that if you say a prayer, you live however you want and reject the things of God that you will go to heaven? No, it doesn't. You must be born again. And so that's why these verses are so important. He who overcomes, he who endures to the end. If I am truly born again, I'm not going to be perfect. I might even run for God for a season of my life, but I am always going to know that the Spirit of God is convicting me, is dealing with me, is working in my life. I ran from the Lord for five years, and there was never a time when I was at the Spot Tavern or I was out at some place that I didn't know. I didn't know that this is not where God wanted me to be. I never in, in all of those years of running and rebellion and stubborn, I always knew that I was not where God wanted me to be. And at any time I thought, God, this could be it. You could smite me just like that. Because I knew what He had done in my life. I remember when I was saved. I remember how God has worked in my life. I remember what God has done in me. But yet I just was running after the pleasures of sin. You say, Jake, should that be everyone's testimony that is a believer? Yes. You say, what if that isn't my testimony? Then you probably need to be saved. You probably need to trust Him as the Lord and Savior of your life. Because 1 John chapter 2 explains this to us about those who leave the faith after they were once claiming to have it. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verses 18 through 21. Little children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know, by which we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest that none of them were of us. Now stop right there. He's not talking about people that get mad and go to a different church. Alright? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who had believed the Word of God, lived the Word of God, taught the Word of God, but when whatever happened in their life, whatever it was, and they had a choice to pursue Jesus or run from Jesus, they ran from Him. Truly who He is. And He's explaining to us why that happens. They were never truly saved. It sounds like the, uh, the rocky soil and the, mm -hmm. the shallow soil. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Because look what he says about what's different. Because that, that's the only verse we ever quote. But don't miss verse 20. But you, children of God, those who have been born again, those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you know all things. Now, before some of you start thinking you know it all, stop for a second. Because <laughs> I can see the wheels turning. I knew my wife was wrong. Who is the revealer of all truth? The Holy Spirit. The anointing that you have is Him indwelling you at salvation. Him coming to live within you. It is a special anointing. It's something the Old Testament believers couldn't understand. Right? The Holy Spirit would fall on them for a season. And they would be used by God. But when Jesus was crucified and He was buried and He rose again and the veil was torn and the temple now becomes the children of God, when you get saved, you don't just make a decision. You don't just walk an aisle. The very Spirit of God comes to live within you. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so what he says is, you have an anointing. You have an anointing from God. In verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Why did he write that? This is why. When people leave the faith, people begin to question, well, it must not be a real faith. When some television preacher or Christian musician gets on his Facebook page to his billion followers and says, I'm no longer a Christian. You read about it all the time on Yahoo News and they say, this must not be the real thing. And what John was writing, he was saying, don't believe that. The real thing works. They didn't have the real thing. When the Spirit of God really indwells you, He indwells you. That's right. What they had was nothing. When you truly are born again, you are born again. When you are made a new creation, you are made a new creation. And he says when that happens, it sticks. It changes everything. And he says, don't you believe these people who are saying, Jesus isn't power enough to save. The Holy Spirit isn't powerful enough to keep. The power of God's not enough to work. He says what they've got is an imitation. Warren Buffett has a quote that I love about businesses, churches, and individual finances. I think it is so important. When the tide goes out, you see who is swimming naked. <laughs> and he's using that about businesses, right? When the water's up, no one sees what's going on below, right? Everybody's good when the economy's booming, but when the economy goes to tank, those businesses that were over leveraged, had too much debt, had a terrible management system, those what? Collapse. You see everything. And that is the real identifier <coughs> of faith, is when the tide goes out. Who's clothed you? When the storms come in your life, who are you standing upon? When you get the phone call that the person you love the most has passed away, 
do you run to him or from him? When you get a call that your favorite church member is out in town talking how bad you are and they're going to church somewhere else, do you go to him or do you go from him? When you get the word that it's cancer, do you run to him or from him? You see, when the rocks and the storms of life come and your faith is tested, that is the proof of whether you've been born again or not. And that's what John says. When it's Jesus that lasts. And for this church, the only thing that's going to last is what the Lord builds. People are going to come. People are going to go. Some Sundays will be better than other Sundays. But if we keep building on the Lord's Word and with the Lord's focus and the Lord's vision, it will last. That is why you could go anywhere in this country, and I mean anywhere in this country, and find a church that is 200 years old plus and see the things that God is doing. It is not because of us. It's not because of, of us. It's because of Him. But I also believe it's because some faithful believers have laid down a foundation. And they've been willing to stay. When the storms come, we're not jumping ship. When the water starts to take on, we're going to just keep shoveling. When things change in cultures and settings, we're going to stay true. I don't know if you know this or not, most churches have decided we're not going to talk about sexual sin <coughs> at all. There's a growing movement to ordain openly homosexual individuals into the ministry. It's just a growing movement. But what they've done is they said we're taking on water, but we're not going to do anything about it. Persecution is coming. We can't do anything about it. But what God needs from us is just to be faithful. To trust Him. To run to Him. When things happen, fall on Him. Don't trust a preacher because one of these days God's going to call me home or call me away. One of the two. And you'll be left to continue on with the work. Now, if I leave in the rapture and you don't, nah, 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 nah. All right? I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm hoping you go too. All right? I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Just a joke. You'll see the Lord, but you'll be a great pastor. Yeah, yeah. If I don't make fun of them people, but see? But the work goes on. So just a little bit of a problem with trusting preachers. I've been here 11 and a half. Brother John was here for 10. Terry Walters was here for 6 months. A bright moment in the history. Mark Lee was here for 7. Denny Steed was here for 9. Before that, you had Frank Bookman for three, uh, Hart for three, uh, Rudolph Slag twice for a total of 12, Larry Jones for three, J.D. Malding was here 14 different times for a total of 18 years. Uh, it changes, but the work goes on. The church moves forward. That is why he has to be what we're building on. Because if it's built on a deacon or a Sunday school teacher, or a pastor that will not last. But I believe the greatest example of what God can do is when we stay faithful to Him as individuals, as a church, 
as a couple. How you finish is what matters. Don't wreck what the harbor decides. Questions, comments? I know I gave you a lot. teaches we love him because he first loves us. Absolutely. So can we assume, I guess, that, that most in this particular church were never saved? And only the few. Only the few. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Which should be two or three at least. Well, I think if you have a church, especially in this town, because what we know is it had a huge Jewish population. And so it probably had a fairly large church, uh, just by some of the writings that we found. So we could have had hundreds of people that would have been painful. We don't know that for sure. But it does say a few. Yeah. That word for few, though, could mean... Yeah. Word. Yeah. In today's... Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can, we can just assume that, that the leadership was probably not saved. Well, I think, I think you can, but I think there would have been some, though, that would have been saved, but had lost their way. And so the Lord was telling them, listen up. If you're really saved, you're going to turn. You're going to repent. You're going to make this right. And if you don't, it's an evident that you're not. That you're not saved. That you are, you know, because only the Lord knows that. And, but yeah. Not to argue or anything, but it says here, uh, they shall not walk with me in white. Right. I, I assume that means their name is not in the book. Yeah, they are not, they are not saved. Right. Yes. Some of them were not. They were in, yeah. But the reality is we don't know who's saved. It's only God that comes right. saved and not mm-hmm. here to pursue everybody. Yeah. Uh, there's 8,000 people in our county and about views for 2,000. Mm-hmm. There's a big issue just in our county. Absolutely. Hello, yeah. question. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And we're not to judge. God is the judge. But there's a fine line here. But we are known by our fruit. Absolutely. So if you look at someone and you look at their fruit and you say, okay, they are godly or they are not godly or they are saved and they are, are you judging? So what I have really prayed about lately is when you inspect a fruit, do you do it from the road while you drive by? No. Right? You get out, you go up to the fruit, you get where the fruit's at. I think most of us try to food, fruit inspect from the road. I see them on Facebook, so or I, you know, I drove by their car was at the Elms or whatever. I think that's how we. That's where we get into the issue of judging. We're trying to fruit inspection. If I really want to inspect fruit, someone needs to come up to my life and be like, "Hey, I heard this. Can I talk to you about this?" I think that's real fruit inspecting, and I think that is where we don't do a good job of it. It's like. I, I, I think this about you. It could be about this you, but real and fruit inspection means I'm gonna. Sorry, I, you know, meet you moment. But you know, uh, 
you know, I'm going to get involved in his life. I'm going to know him. I'm going to really know what makes him tick, what's going on in his life, instead of just saying, well, the church up the road, you know, they've lost their way, right? Because I, I just see it. So I think that's the biggest thing, is we're not to judge. We are to inspect. But I believe that we have to be involved in someone's life before we can be in. we're dismissing them, we're judging them. If we're dismissing them, we're, we're saying bad fruit, going to just cast them aside. Well, I think then, that we, then we are judging. Them. Well, I think though we have to also though, <clears throat> if you need to go, you can. If not, but I you have to also say. protect yourself too. But also, I think the Bible says though that if someone professes to be a believer in the Book of Corinthians and they're living in open sin, right. and if we've talked to them, we went to them, then we are to have nothing to do with right. them. But once again, I think we're involved in their life, then we know. And that's the only way we can do that. But yet we treat them, hopefully that the Lord will show them repentance, right? We live in a way that God would grant them repentance. So I think it's a fine line. I think we don't do a good job. We either do no fruit inspecting or we do too much just drive by, right? So I hope that helps. That's something the Lord's convicted me of. Jake, if you don't know or you're not willing to, just keep your pie hole shut. And I'm usually not willing to get to know them, so I'm trying to do better. And the Lord's like, Jake, don't be such a recluse. I'm trying, Lord. Well, I think sometimes, too, why we're fruit inspecting can start out because we want to judge. Mm -hmm. And I just think that we have to be genuine in our motives. And that's something that the Lord has really convicted me in my life is what is, what is your motive for doing that? What, yeah. what is your desire for the end results to be? Yeah, my motive is to be wrong because this is what happens in church. Hey, pastor, did you hear about so-and-so? Dang it! I think you need to go talk to them. You go talk to them. Right. Inspection should start with But and then, So my mind is already made up. Oh, man, if I don't go talk to them, this member is going to be mad at me because now I'm some bleeding-heart liberal that won't take a stand. But I don't know what's going on, so I guess I'll just wade into this landmine, and then I'll show up at the house and be like, hey, I heard something's going on. Who's been gossiping to you about me? Legalist. Well, I can't tell you because they don't want me to. It starts out so scripturally well, right? So that's my biggest problem. I just want to say, hey, just go talk to them. Here's their number. Here's their address. So, yes. If you're a Christian and you see a fellow Christian falling by the wayside, mm -hmm. I think you are obligated to go to that person and try to tell them you know, tell them what you're seeing and you're praying for them and you you would like, if it's true, you would like for them to repent and have that fellowship again with God because if there's sin, there's no fellowship there. And if they're a supposed Christian, you got to have that fellowship. So is there anyone I haven't offended tonight who would just like me to do something to finish it off? Yeah, go ahead, Jake. I'm just kidding. So I'm just trying to finish up because I really want some of that vegetable soup that I didn't get. So. Yeah, I don't burn my hands. I got thick skin. So. But any pressure?